All right, so if you were not here uh, last week, or actually it was two weeks ago because we had Easter supper last week. Uh, if you were not here, we began a new chapter in Matthew, Matthew 11, and we did, uh, we did verses 1 through 6. And so let me kind of get you up to date. If you don't know what's happening here, you're not a Bible person or you weren't here, is, um, it, Matthew is a story, and it is a document like the rest of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in which gives us the life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus from different perspectives. And so Right before the passage that we're going to be looking at today, we are introduced to, not for the first time, but uh, in, this, in the chapter, a guy named John the Baptist. And you may have heard of John the Baptist before, but if you don't know who he is, um, his deal is he, is, uh, he was a wild man, he was crazy, he wore camel's hair, he had dreadlocks, he lived out in the desert, um, he ate locusts, he was, he was a crazy dude. And he came out of the desert and he had this message. And his message that he would go around and preach was, repent for the kingdom of God is near. Now, there's a lot of theological significance about this message, and we'll get to that, but just know that um, he had a very radical message. He was a prophet where he came and he proclaimed that, God is, that God's about to do something radical in the world, and so you need to get right with God. You need to repent. You need to turn away from your sin. And, uh, and, and then one day, as he's preaching this message, and it's popular, and lots of people are gathering, and he has disciples that are following him because they, they like his message. He sees Jesus, who happens to also be his cousin, walk by and he says, that's the guy. That is the Messiah that has been promised for hundreds of years that is going to save Israel. And in fact, he's going to bless the entire world. He's going to bring salvation. And so he identifies Jesus as the coming Messiah. And he also tells his disciples, hey, um, you should follow him because that's the one that you have been waiting for. Now, we found last week that he found himself in trouble, that John, as a prophet, would go and not only would he say these very bold things about God, but he would um, call people out who were living immoral lives, who happened to be uh, the king and the queen. And we got into the whole Jerry Springer craziness that was happening within that family. But John ends up in prison. And while John is in prison and he is given a death sentence and he's waiting to be killed, he starts to doubt. He begins to doubt, well, maybe I was wrong about Jesus. Maybe he really isn't the Messiah. And so he sends a message to Jesus asking, are you the one that we've been waiting for? Are you really the Messiah? Because I'm having a lot of doubts as I sit here in prison. And Jesus' response to John is, the blind have received sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. So in short, he says, yes, John, I am the Messiah. I understand you're in a bad place right now, but just uh, rest in the fact that I am the Messiah, the one that you and everyone else has been waiting for. Okay, so you had to understand all that so that we can jump into verse 7. All right, so Matthew 11, verse 7 says this, as John's disciples were leaving... So remember, so this is, they came and they talked to Jesus, and then his disciples are going to go back. As John's disciples were leaving to go back to John, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. So uh, it's kind of interesting because we have a little bit of a turn of events here. Is John comes and he is talking about Jesus. He's supposed to be the pointer for Jesus. He talks about Jesus. But in this moment, um, Jesus begins to talk about John. And he says, all of you people who went and followed John, disciples, you huge crowds where we'd listen to John's teachings of repentance, why did you go out there? What did you want to hear from this guy? 
I mean, this is a wild dude, and he's taking you out into the desert, into these crazy places. What did you go out to hear? Did you go out to hear like a really soft, easy, inspirational message? Did you go out there and you were hoping that maybe he would say something that makes you feel better about your life or about your choices and your lifestyle? What did you go out into the desert to hear? What was your purpose for listening to John? Because if you went out there to hear a safe or comfortable or easy message, you went to the wrong person. That's not who John is. And he doesn't take you to the safe and easy places. If you were looking for a safe, easy, fun message that's going to be lighthearted and make you feel good and have tingles inside, you went to the wrong place. Because if you want one of those types of messages, you need to go to the palaces where the kings are, where people are going to tell you good things about you and your lifestyle. They're going to affirm everything about you. But that's not what you came to hear. What you came to hear was the truth. And this is one of Jesus' Uh, central claims that we're going to find out in this passage. And I find this really interesting because I I think that what was true 2,000 years ago is still true today, is that people, if you want to hear a message that makes you feel good about yourself, it seems to always be the wealthy, the celebrities, the people who are uh, the elite of the culture. Because if you ever watch like an award show or you ever watch an interview with somebody, they're never going to say anything controversial. It's always like, hey, you do you. You are awesome. Whatever you want to do, whatever you want to be, you could be that kind of thing. It seems to always be the elite of the culture that says, oh, okay, it's fine. Just be who you want to be. But then you have crazy radical prophets who come along like John and says, absolutely not. I have come here to proclaim the truth that the Messiah is coming. And then Jesus comes along and he takes over and he says, not only do I come to bring truth, but I am the truth. I am the embodiment of truth. And I'm going to challenge your worldview. I'm going to challenge some of your beliefs. I'm going to challenge some of your lifestyle, some of your choices, some of the things that you think are true about yourself and the world I am going to say are false. And I'm going to put that right in your face where you're going to have to deal with it. And so if you're looking for a very easy message Jesus is not the person that you want to go to. And we're going to find that there is this tension between Jesus gives the message that we we need and we want, and yet it's going to be confrontational and it's going to be hard because here's what's at the center of Jesus' message. He gives you the good news, but he also gives you the bad news. And that's what makes the good news better. See, the bad news is that you are more sinful than you could have ever imagined. When Jesus talks about the human heart, And he talks about all the people who, like you and I, who probably think, well, we're pretty good folks. Like, we don't get, we're not in jail, at least, at least not right now. Uh, You know, like, we feel like we're pretty decent people, upstanding citizens. And Jesus looks at us and goes, actually, your heart is so desperately wicked that you are as evil as any person on death row. That's how desperately wicked your heart is. That's what lies within the human heart. And then at the same time, he says, that's the bad news, but the good news is you are more loved than you could ever imagine. That God loves you so much that despite how, actually because of how evil your human heart is, he gave his only son to die for you. And so there's this tension between the incredibly bad news of how sinful we are and the incredibly good news of how good Jesus is. And I think that this is a, this, this tension permeates the Christian life and belief. So I don't know if you uh, ever watched or listened to or uh, read the Chronicles of Narnia, but uh, there's a line in there that's pretty famous. And one of the characters, Susan, 
asks about Aslan, the lion. And if you don't know, this is uh, symbolic of Jesus. And so the lion is supposed to be Jesus. And there's this, uh, there's this dialogue that happens. Here's what it says. She asks, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, says the beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He is the king, I tell you. And so C.S. Lewis, who wrote this, is actually giving us a really profound truth. He says that Jesus is not safe. Jesus is incredibly dangerous, and yet he's good. And I think that this is true of so many aspects of the Christian life, is that being a Christian is both the best and most dangerous thing that you can do with your life. It's the best because it gives you eternal security, that you know what happens when you die. You have a relationship with the Creator. You have been reconciled with your Creator. And you get to live a life full of purpose and meaning and fulfillment. And honestly, that's what everybody's looking for. Everybody's looking for not a comfortable life. They're looking for a life of meaning, of purpose. And this is what Jesus gives us. But it's also incredibly dangerous. Because God, when you enter into a relationship with God, you are now allowing him to speak into your life. You're giving him full access to speak to you. And what God could do in any given moment is he could speak into your life and, and tell you that you have to uproot and change everything. You need to get up and move. You need to go. You need to, you need to change something. I have people come to me all the time like, I know this sounds crazy, but I really feel like God's telling me to quit my job. I have a great career, but I think I'm supposed to quit. And I don't know why. I'm supposed to break up with my boyfriend or my girlfriend. I'm supposed to give away this money. I'm supposed to go and move to a third world country. I'm supposed to do some crazy things. Why? Because being a Christian is dangerous. It's not something that's supposed to be safe. Because the creator of the universe gets to speak into your life and tell you what to do. And that's incredibly exciting. That is good. That is where you want to be. However, it's not comfortable. Ultimately, the scripture, and, and we'll talk about this in a moment, but it talks about the kingdom of God. And it talks about this kingdom of God is here, and yet it's not yet, and I'll explain that in a moment. But as Christians, we are called to be people who are building the kingdom of God here on earth. And if you think about people who have built kingdoms in the past, let's take our nation, for example. You had a group of people who decided to move from England to here to build a new nation. And then you had people to, who went from the East Coast and they decided to go West. And you probably played a game called Oregon Trail, right? Oregon Trail, yeah. You play that game? You guys have no idea what that is? Google it. Okay. But... And people died because they had diarrhea, right? That's all I, that's all I remember, the, kind of the end of the deal. Anyway. Dysentery, thank you. Dysentery. It's called diarrhea. Anyway, so, so you think about people who have built kingdoms. If you want a comfortable life, do not become a kingdom builder. Do you know how uncomfortable it would be to go to a new place where there is no established civilization and you are going to be the one that's going to bring that to this place? That sounds like a horrible thing to do. Being a kingdom builder, it does not seem comfortable at all. You have to get out of every luxury, every comfort that you have, and you have to move to a new place. See, that's what we're called to be as Christians, is we're called to bring a kingdom here to this world. Now, it's not a physical kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's an authority. It's where God's rule is over our lives and the rest of the world. 
And so we should not believe that we're going to be comfortable as we pursue this kingdom, as living in the kingdom and bringing the kingdom to the rest of the world. And see, going to church, I think, is the same thing. It's both an incredibly good place to be, but a dangerous place to be as well. It's good because this is the place that you are going to be the most welcome. You are going to be loved. People are going to embrace you. People are truly going to invest in you, in your life, and they want the best for you. That's why it's such a great place to be. However, it's a dangerous place as well. Because in this place, we are going to read what Jesus has to say to us, and we are going to wrestle with that, and he is going to challenge us. He's going to challenge our lifestyle in which we may walk out of here and we may feel guilty because Jesus has said you are supposed to live this way and you're actually living that way. It's going to challenge our worldview because we thought we had things figured out, and then Jesus comes along and says, actually, you're wrong. It's going to challenge our beliefs. It's going to challenge what we think we're supposed to do and who we're supposed to be. And so being in church is a dangerous place. If you want to live your life as is and never be challenged, never be confronted, don't come here because it's dangerous. And then God may show up and may just just explode into your mind and in your heart and just transform everything. So being here is a very dangerous thing, but it's also a good thing. See, speaking truth and love, which we are called to do, is sometimes scary, sometimes harsh, but it's also uh, the most loving thing that we could do. So think about this, is um, people choosing churches and pastors like they choose uh, uh, doctors. So you never choose a doctor based on if he makes you feel nice after your visit, right? Like, he's like, look, I don't want to talk about any of the bad stuff that's going on in your body, okay? I just want you to love you, all right? I just want you to understand that you're beautiful, okay? And people love you, and that you're just awesome, okay? You have a great week. No, you want to know, am I dying? Am I dying? Tell me if I'm dying, because, uh, great, you made me feel good, but I'm going to be dead next week, and I don't even know it, all right? Tell me the truth. I want to know the truth. Yes, it would be nice if you have some bedside manner, and you said, you're dying, okay? Like, like, that would be better. But I want to know, above anything else, I want to know what is true about me and true about my world. I don't want to just feel good about myself. And see, that's what church should be as well, is we shouldn't go to church just to feel good about ourselves and walk out and like, I'm inspired for this week, you know? Like, I hope that happens. Great. But the main objective is we want to know what's true. We want to know what Jesus expects of us and what uh, he has told us about ourselves and about the world and how we can be in a better relationship with him. That's what we should come to church for, not to feel good and fuzzy. And Okay, you got that. All right, verse 10. Here we go. Uh, verse 10 says this. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And so if you were going to take Jesus' central message and you were going to condense it to one sentence, I think it's best to summarize, and this, this is kind of what he's saying here. In Mark 1.5, it says, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God, or kingdom of heaven, is arriving. And so here's, here's one of like, Jesus' central point is throughout human history, God has had this redemptive plan in which man rebelled against God, and so God has been planning how he is going to bring creation and mankind back under his rulership and in reconciliation with him. And the part of the plan was he brought this nation, Israel, that kind of talks about and revealed himself to this nation, and then through Israel, they revealed to the rest of the world who God is. But then through Jesus... 
Jesus arrives and says, with my coming, the kingdom of God is here. Now, what exactly does this mean? The kingdom of God is a place in which, and not just a physical place, although one day it will be, it's a spiritual place in which God rules over everything. The kingdom of God is where creation, which is rightfully God's, comes back under his authority. And mankind is not just coerced into following him, but has given their hearts over because they trust and they love their creator. And he loves them so much that they know that he is going to do uh, what is best for them. And so this kingdom of God is a place that obviously is not here yet because there are so many people, including many of us, who are still in rebellion against our creator. And yet... It is also here, it is arriving because he allows us to live in that kingdom here and now. To submit our lives to him and say, we're going to live under your authority, under your rulership. And this is all possible because of Jesus. Jesus not only brings the kingdom, but he is the sacrifice that allows us to enter into a relationship with God. That we have been in rebellion and we have rebelled against his kingdom and created our own individual kingdoms where we are the authority. And Jesus comes and he dies, paying the penalty for our rebellion and allowing us, if we so choose, to live under God's authority again. And so what Jesus says is, John came to declare that the kingdom is coming. And then I come and I say, and I am the one who is bringing this kingdom. And so not only does John, or does Jesus point to John, but John points back to Jesus. And then Jesus says, if you want to Live in that kingdom, you must submit your life to me. And then Jesus says something about John. And this is really interesting because there's a few things that are happening here. I actually had to go back and and study it a bit because it's kind of paradoxical. Jesus says that John is the greatest man to have ever been born. And he points out, I think, something important. Is in this moment, and throughout the scriptures, this is especially true on the Sermon on the Mount, is Jesus redefines what greatness is. So think about in your mind really quick, what are the attributes of someone who is great? Just in your mind, what do you think about someone of the attributes of great? What, what would you, first things that we probably think of, unless you're a church person and you know where I'm going with this, all right, is you probably thought of someone who's great, who has had great accomplishments. They've been very successful, right? They've maybe been successful in an industry or they've been able to influence a lot of people or maybe they have, they've, they have a lot of uh, material goods, material wealth. They have money. They have power. Maybe they're beautiful. They're successful. If we were to ask most people on the street, who is someone who is great? They would probably give you a a famous either president or celebrity or sports figure or something like that. They would say, they lived a great life. But then Jesus comes along and he says, if you want to be great, I define greatness in the opposite way as the rest of the world. Here's what they say greatness is, and I say greatness in God's economy is the opposite. And so if you are claiming to be strong, because of course that's what the world says is great, In God's economy, if you're great, you will be weak. You will understand that it is not through your own power that you can do anything, but it's only through the Holy Spirit that empowers you. If you claim to be successful, if you're full of pride, if you want to be great in the kingdom of God, you have to be humble. You have to realize that all of your gifts, all of your possessions, all of your opportunities and your relationships, those were given to you by God. You did nothing to earn those. You just didn't screw it up. That's it. And so you should be humble instead of prideful. And this is a big one. If you celebrate your immorality, 
Your sexual sin, your greed, your lust, all the things that the world celebrates. You go and you be adventurous in your sexual life. You become successful. You take all the money that you can get. If you celebrate that, if you want to be great within the kingdom of God, you have to mourn over those things. Mourn over your lust. Mourn over your sexual immorality. Mourn over your greed and envy. Mourn because you know that this is not God's best for you. Not only should our character and disposition change, but also should the entire focus and goal of our life. See, John, he was, he was radical. He was different. His disposition was different. He didn't care about what was happening. He didn't care about being wealthy or having status. He understood that the, in God's economy, greatness looked very different. But he also understood that if he was going to be great, it was not to pursue his own goals and initiatives, but it was going to be by pursuing what God had for him. I've said this a few times, but last December, a friend, who I, I call him a friend because I, I got to know him over the last couple of years, Nabil, was speaking here. And if you haven't heard Nabil Qureshi speak, you need to hear this. And you can look online. And he came and he gave one of the most powerful messages I've ever heard. And I kid you not, every day since then, one of the things that he said has rung through my mind. He said, go and fulfill your ministry. And what he meant by this is that God has given each one of us a ministry, something that he has designated for us to do before we were even born, a, a person that he has put in our life, a task that we are supposed to do. He has given us some opportunity that he is going to allow us to be his hands and feet and be a part of his work within the world, and I don't want to miss that. Every day I get up, and this is an incredibly difficult thing for me to say, and I think it will be for you too to, to as well, is I get up every day and I say, God... Don't let me miss it today. I want to fulfill my ministry. Whatever you have for me, whatever you've laid in front of me, whatever you want me to do, my answer will be yes, because I don't want to miss this. You've given me a mission in the world, and I want to make sure that I fulfill that mission. And that's who John was. John was not about all the other stuff. He was not about the status. He was not about his own goals. He was all about serving God and fulfilling his ministry, even at the cost of his very own life. Because as we will later learn, he ends up getting killed over his proclaiming of the good news. Verse 12, from the days of John... John the Baptist, until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. Okay, I got to be honest, this is a crazy verse, and I'm so excited to talk about this right now because it is so odd. So Jesus gives us this very strange picture. He's talking about Christians being violent people, and he's talking about it in a positive sense. Now, this is, like, is going to take a little explaining. So if we go back a few chapters, in Matthew 7, 13, he says this. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few will find it. So here's what he's saying. He's saying that if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, then you must be violent. And what he means by the violent is you must be eager and focused and have a, a, this, this singular goal in your life that you will enter the kingdom of heaven. That you will be... It, here's the illustration. I think that he's getting at because he's got these gates, right? Wide gate, narrow gate, and then he talks about violence. What this imagery brings up is this city that's being besieged. 
is these people attacking the city, and the city is this like kingdom of God, and these people will do anything to get inside that city. That they, they will be violent. Now, is he talking about physical violence here? Of course not. The scripture is very clear over and over again that physical violence is uh, abhorrent to God. That when we do violence to other people, it's as if we are, uh, as if we are offending and assaulting God himself, because we are God's image bearers. And so when we hurt an image bearer, we're, we're hurting God's image. We're, we're attacking God's image. And so it's very clear he's not talking about physical violence, but he is very much talking about force. And so Jesus says, if you want to enter into the kingdom of God, it is going to be through violence, through force, by being ruthless to making sure that you enter. It's about doing anything and everything to enter into the kingdom of God. Now, if you're theologically minded, you might be going, time out, hold on. You're saying we should be ruthless in entering into the kingdom of God, living in that kingdom. But isn't like salvation, being made right with God, or forgiveness, isn't that a gift? Isn't that free? And I would say yes. That you can do nothing to earn your salvation. That is a complete gift, that there's no amount of good things that you can do, good lifestyle that you can have, that it's a total gift that God gives us and that we have to accept it as a gift. But here is the tension, is that although salvation is totally free and is a gift, the enemy wants nothing more than to take that away from you, to lure you away from your commitment, to take you away from your relationship with Christ, to either tear it from you through tragedy, through strife, or to lure you away from it with success, or just to make you plain apathetic. But the enemy wants so badly to take that gift away from you. And so we have to be people who are focused on holding on to Christ, to holding on to that gift, to embracing him and never letting go. And we have to be ruthless and violent as we hold on to that. One of my favorite sayings, it's actually, uh, I think, Billy Graham is the one who originated it, is salvation is free, but following Jesus will cost you something. And I think that gives us this balance where the, the gift of salvation, totally free. It's grace. It's only by God's grace that we are saved, but we have to hold on to that, and it may be costly, and we have to be ruthless as we do that. See, I've been a pastor for a, a long time now, like 10, 12 years, something like that. It's crazy. Some of you guys were like, fifth graders, I think, or something. But I have got to know lots of different types of people. And when it comes to people's spiritual disposition, I think that there's really only um, two types of people. There are the passive and the proactive seekers of truth. So there's the passive and proactive. So the passive people usually come in like this. Is they come into the ministry, I can almost tell you right away, and this is bad and whatever, but it sounds judgmental. It's not. Is I can almost tell you who's going to make it and who's not. I can almost tell you. I can almost tell you, you will be here in six months and you will not be here in six months. And some of them are totally obvious because they come in and they're like scamming on some chicks and like, <laughs> okay, cool. And they get rejected so they don't come back, right? I get that. Or they got dragged here by somebody, or they're kind of bored, or whatever. I don't know what their, their, their motivation is, but I can tell that they're not, they're passive. They don't really care. And they usually fit into two categories. Either they're passive because they're busy, right? This is ever, I, I run into people all the time. It's so fantastic. I'm like, where have you been? I haven't seen you in like forever. Oh, I'm busy, dude. I'm like, yeah, junior college can do that to you, man. I'm freaking, woo, I bet. For sure you're busy. Um, but like, but in all seriousness, 
some of them are really busy, right? Because what they're saying is, I am really busy because I am focused on something. Busyness is not, I don't have time for church. It's church is not a priority. Or it's not that I'm so busy that I just forget about God. It's that God is not a priority. And so you have to ask, well, what is a priority? And most of the time people are busy because they have made something else the main priority in their life. Maybe it's their career. Maybe it's school. Maybe it's a relationship. Whatever it is, they're busy because something else has taken the top spot in their life. And they oftentimes are more concerned with making money or getting a house or having a level of success or getting married or whatever it is. They're more concerned about that and they're very much indifferent about God and the big questions of heaven and hell and what happens after this and where did we come from and the big scary questions. They're just too busy to think about those big crazy questions. They're more focused on what's happening right here and now. And then there's another type of person. And usually this, these people are a little older in life. It's not a whole lot of people in their, in their 20s and 30s, but they're cynical. That they have gone through life and they've had a tough time and they realize, and I think that for the most part, they're wiser than the busy person because they realize as the busy person chases these things that they think are going to fulfill them and bring happiness and wholeness to their life, they realize that's not going to get me there. It's not going to get me there. The money, the success, the relationships, none of that stuff is going to fulfill me. But instead of going and looking for something else, they just say, it's not out there. The attitude is kind of summed up with, hey, you know, life is hard and then you die. That's why we get high. Nas. Yes. Thank you. You're welcome. That was a rapper, by the way, Nas, if you guys went. Some people went, cars? I don't get it. Cars? Makes their car go fast? That's weird. Um, but these people realize... Look, life is hard, their heart is hard, whatever. They're over it. I don't care about any of that crap anymore. And so these are usually the type of people who I know they're not going to find the truth. They're not. Either they don't believe the truth is out there to be found or they just don't care to look for it. And Jesus says, if you want to find the truth about who you are, what you were made for, what happens after you die, the big questions, you cannot be passive about these questions. The only people who are going to find truth are people who are actively pursuing it. They are proactive truth seekers. And that's who Christians are called to be, is we are called to be violent truth seekers. Violent truth seekers. Jesus says, if you want to find the truth, then you have to have a proactive stance towards the universe. You have to be ruthless. You have to be violent in your pursuit of truth. You cannot let anything get in your way. You have to want to have truth above all else, and you have to rip everything out of your life if it gets in the way. That's who Christians are supposed to be. We're supposed to be obsessed with following Jesus and following his truths. See, people who come in here and they're like just firing, they're not believers, they're not sure about Jesus, and they're firing questions at me like, why do bad things happen to good people? Are you serious? You believe a dead person rose from the dead? How do you, can you believe these things? And they're firing questions at me. I love it. You know why? Because they're, they're much closer to finding the truth than the person who comes in is like, whatever, dude, I'm busy. You know, I got chicks and stuff to hang out with. I got, like, money to make. I'm like, dude, you'll never figure this out. You will never figure this out. But the person comes in here, is one questions, is one answers, and wants to figure this out. That person is way closer to the truth than the person says, yeah, I believe in God. Yeah, God's good. Like, as long as I'm cool, he's cool. Like, we'll play hobbies for eternity, and he loves golf. I love golf. You know, it's great. You know, they make up this whatever crap, Okay. The person who asks the questions and wants to know the answers is much closer to finding the truth than the person who just doesn't care. And that's the kind of people that I love. I love those kinds of people. 
Because these, these are the types of people that we see in the scripture or the people that got into a relationship with Jesus. They were violent. They were ruthless when they had to find an answer. They wanted to know the truth. The people who sat by and said, oh yeah, I've heard about Jesus. Yeah, he seems like a nice guy. They never met Jesus. They never got to meet Jesus. It was only the people who dug holes and roofs and lowered their friends down to see Jesus. The only people that went through the crowds and clawed just so they could touch his robe. It was only the people who were violent and ruthless that were able to meet Jesus. It's still same true, it's still true today. Is we have to be ruthless in our pursuit of Jesus. It's also true of our spiritual disciplines. Even when we get into a relationship with Jesus, everything in the world is going to want to pull us away from him. And if you look at some of the spiritual disciplines, you will realize how violent and ruthless you have to be. Try sitting just this week. You Just try sitting two hours. I dare you. Try sitting for two hours and praying. You will have to be so focused and ruthless because your mind is going to want to wander in a thousand directions and you're supposed to say, okay, Lord, I'm here for you. I want to stay focused on you. Here's the things in my heart that I'm struggling with. Here's my sin. I'm repenting of this. Try that for two hours and you will realize how tough it is. That's why you have to be violent in your pursuit. Or if you want peace, you don't get to just sit around and passively just go, okay, God, I'm waiting for peace. Hit me. <laughs> Hit me with peace. Okay, I'm waiting. Did you miss? Uh, you know, where you at? You know, like, no. Jesus never says, wait around for peace. Wait around for this, uh, to get these insecurities. Wait around so that you are no longer or bitter and holding on to these. No, no, no. He never says that. You know what Jesus says? If you want peace, you need to stop and consider the birds of the air. It's never a passive thing. It's always a proactive. You need to sit and think. You have to sit and pray through this. If you want people to come to know Jesus, you don't just sit around and wait for them to go, hey, can you tell me about Jesus, the Lord, the Savior? Can you tell me about that a little bit? I saw you the other day, and you used your blinker, and it was fantastic. And I said, there's something different about them. There is something different. Tell me about your changed heart. No, that will never happen. No one will ever ask you because nothing about our faith is passive. It is all proactive. It is all aggressive. It is all focused. It has to be done ruthlessly, meaning nothing is getting in our way. And so if you have friends or family that you're waiting, that you want them to know Jesus, stop sitting around. Stop sitting around. You have to be proactive. If you have sin in your life, you have habitual sin in which you're dealing with pornography, you're sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, you're drinking, you're, whatever your thing is, if you're just waiting for God to cure you of that sin, it will never happen. You have to be aggressive. You have to be focused. You have to violently rip out those things in your life. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to stumble, what? Rip it out. That's violent. Get it out of your life. Throw your computer away. Get rid of your iPhone. Get a flip phone if you can. That would be hot. Okay, get a flip phone. Break up with that boyfriend or girlfriend. I don't care. Be ruthless when you have to deal with the sin in your life. See, to be a Christian means that your whole being is focused on pursuing him. And you're willing to say, screw status quo Screw comfort, screw the system of the world, screw the easy life. I am only focused on the truth. I am only focused on knowing Jesus and following him, no matter what the cost. And so for some of us, there, there will be a, a huge cost. 
People around the world are being killed for this faith on a daily basis. Persecution is more real today than it has ever been. There are tens of thousands of Christians who are dying daily because they believe this stuff. And Jesus says, yeah, some people may not like you. They may disdain you. They may look at you and think you're weird. You're deluded. You don't understand. You believe in fairy tales. And Jesus says, that's okay. Because you don't live according to the systems of this world any longer. People are going to root for you to fail, and you don't care. You still love them. You still care for them. You still desperately want them to know Jesus. And yet, you're not bound by these systems of the world. Verse 13 through 15 says this. This is how he ends this section. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. Whoever has ears... Let them hear. And so what he says here is he says, you know, the prophecies have been fulfilled. That John was the one that was going to prophesy about the Messiah. That was the forerunner for me. And when I came, he pointed to me and I accepted it. I am the Messiah. I am the Savior of the world. And so he gives us a challenge. He says, whoever, that means anyone, Everyone, doesn't matter what you've done, doesn't matter what lifestyle choices you've made, doesn't matter your background, doesn't matter. Any and everyone who hears the message of Jesus, that the Savior of the world is here and is offering you salvation, is allowing you to be made right with your Creator, anyone who hears this and accepts this as truth will be forgiven. And so he leaves us with the challenge. And I'm just going to end it like the scripture ends it. He leaves you with a choice. He says, will you accept or reject? Will you surrender or continue to rebel? Will you be ruthless in your pursuit or passive and apathetic? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the words that are preserved here in the scriptures, the words that are incredibly challenging and confront all the different areas of our life. And yet, Lord God, these are the words that bring life into our daily struggle, that bring purpose, that bring meaning, that bring hope. And so, Lord God, I, I think that so many of us in here, we just willingly accept that we, we want to pursue the truth no matter where it leads. Wherever you call us, our answer will always be yes. Because even if it costs us our very lives, this pursuit of you is totally worth it because you have words of eternal life. And so, Lord God, we are incredibly grateful for that. Some of us in this room, we need to make some changes. We have been passive. We have been apathetic. We have been saying that we, we are fans of Jesus, but we're not willing to follow wherever he leads, and we need to stop and surrender. Some of us have been resisting your call for a while, and it's time for us to say that we give our lives over to you. Lord God, we thank you for how incredibly good and gracious you are. We pray that you would bless this church as we go out that we would be able to minister to people, that we would be able to seize every opportunity to share the good news with our friends and our family. Lord, we love you. We thank you. Same we pray. Amen.